0: Is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brohoho Brocamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. In our last episode of the year, what? It's a mailbag episode with the help of Motley Fool analyst Buck Hartzel. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Buck, hey, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Allison. Hi, Robert. Thank you for having me. Last show of the year, huh?
0: I know. I know. Can you believe it? Yeah, we take the last week off um, to be nice to ourselves. And we appreciate you taking time off to join us here amidst the holiday season. So, are you, we really appreciate it. That's the bottom line. That's what I'm thankful for this year. Buck Hartzell answering all of our listeners' <laughs> questions. So, I guess we should just get into it, huh? Let's do it. All right. So the first question comes from C. On a recent episode, you were talking about how one should have exposure to stocks outside the U.S. However, you didn't mention how to do that reasonably other than through ETFs. I was looking through my brokerage, and it seems there are some time restrictions, lot restrictions, and other issues such as taxes and currency settlement. I also couldn't find any info on options. It would be nice to have fuller information on that than just saying we should have exposure.
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think you know this is right to give people some direction. You, know, you don't want to have exposure just to the United States. And I think if we look at things right now, there's probably some markets that are a lot cheaper here. That, uh, in their countries than they are in the United States. You know, Warren Buffett just brought a bunch of Japanese conglomerates recently. He took a basket approach to doing that. Um, And they're all trading at pretty low valuations. And so the first thing I would recommend to you is to consider um, looking at interactive brokers. This is not a paid endorsement or anything. I would just say for trading in international stocks, for U.S. investors, interactive brokers does a really nice job of it. They convert the currency and do all that stuff automatically for you, and they're pretty low cost so when it comes to trading in international stocks i think i think that's a really good choice for you to consider making um the other thing i'd say and i guess bro you guys talked about etfs um, prior to this is i would just be a little careful on some of the etfs that you select like particularly among like chinese etfs you know people want exposure to the growing middle class in china but a lot of those etfs are packed with state-owned enterprises and you really don't have a whole lot of exposure to that growing middle class. It's more of these state run companies. And so, you know, my personal preference is for picking individual stocks, but certainly there are other countries that maybe ETFs uh, might be a better solution. And then um, last thing to consider is trading costs are usually higher. So know that. And then the last part that I would make is like, pay more attention to where the revenues are earned in an individual company when you're buying them, as opposed to where the headquarters is domiciled. Right. So you could buy a Japanese car company, but they sell a lot of cars in the United States. You're probably not getting the exposure and diversification that you want. Similarly, if you look at companies here in the United States, you could have Coca-Cola. They sell a lot of Coke internationally. Right. So you can get some international exposure by owning U.S. companies, too, if you pay attention to where they earn their revenues.
2: I'll just add to that, we don't talk about actively managed funds that often, but I think this is certainly a category where they're worth considering. And You might even start with your 401k uh, because, generally speaking, every 401k has an international stock fund. Hopefully, the 401k committee is on top of things and they've chosen a good one. And That might be an easy way to get some international exposure where you do have some professional management there looking into the holdings and choosing what they think are the best companies.
0: All right. Our next question comes from Pat. I have recently started a large home improvement. In addition to paying for a portion of it in cash, I've taken out a HELOC. Additionally, given the sentiment that the market is currently overpriced, I'm also considering taking some money off the table to pay for it by selling some of my holdings. If I should, would you recommend selling the well-performing funds or use this as an opportunity to get rid of the underperforming funds?
1: First of all, great question. And I feel bad for you. Having been through several home improvement projects. (laughs) And they were not small. They were big projects. No, and you never really know what you're getting into. And at the end, once you've been through it, you're like, if I knew what I was getting into, I never would have done that. I just would have bought a new home. But anyhow, good luck to you. And I'd say that's why we invest and we save, right? So, you know, we want that money. So I think it's actually a good time for people to take some money off the table. They've had some stocks that have done well, and particularly ones that have done poorly. So... Your question is, should I sell the worst performing ones or the best performing ones? And my answer is a combination of both. I think, first of all, you start with some of the losers that maybe you don't like as much or haven't performed as well as you would have expected. And take some. if you have some tax losses there, it's a great time to book some of those. And then if you have some gainers that maybe you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable with maybe the allocation that they've grown to become, take some gains there to help offset the losses that you just recorded on some of the losers. That'll minimize your tax losses. minimize your tax gains. And uh, so I like that idea. Sell some of the winners, some of the losers, and help offset some of those gains. And to the extent
2: that the gains uh, outweigh the losses, just make sure you set some of that cash aside because you don't want to spend it all on your home improvement. And then tax time comes along and you're like, oh, I'm short of that cash that I now own.
1: Yeah. Good point.
0: And enjoy the drywall dust because it's going to get everywhere. (laughs) You're going to find it in your sock drawer a decade from now. Like, what? All right. Next question comes from George. I've maxed out my pre-tax contributions to my employer-sponsored 401k plan for 2020 and continued to make after-tax contributions thereafter toward the 57000 annual max. My employer has also matched my deductible contributions as well. But my expectation is that I will be shy of the $57,000 cap by approximately $6,000 come December 31. Oh, wow. We are getting them their advice right under the wire. Yep. Yep. George, George, do not wait to listen to this episode. You're going to be so mad. Okay. Would I be able to contribute the difference to my solo 401k? I know I can take the 19500 deduction once, but the profit-sharing contribution would still be available. No?
2: Well, George, first of all, kudos to you for being a super saver. Um, let me, let's me let start talking a little bit about 401k limits to begin with. So for this year, and it's the same for next year, it's 19500 with an additional 6500 if you'll be 50 or older. Those are going to stay the same, like I said, next year. But there is this all-in limit. That is $57,000 this year with an additional $6,500 if you'll be 50 or older. That includes your contributions, your employer's contributions, could be the match, could be profit sharing. And then you can put in something called after-tax contributions, which uh, we've talked about on previous episodes, a little more complicated, but that seems what George is like what George is trying to do. Um, if you have access to more than one 401k plan, because you have two employers or you have an employer and you're self-employed. Those limits apply total to all your accounts, so you can't put in fifty-seven thousand in one and fifty-seven thousand in another. The only exception is if you have access to a four fifty-seven, which is just uh, limited to a a number of small number of of government employees. So you can't max out two separate accounts. Um, I think what George is trying to do will work. In a previous episode, we talked about if you want to max out your four hundred one k this year, and you have an employer. Chances are you couldn't wait till December 31st because it has to come from your payroll and you have to let them know a couple of days before the final payroll. So it's probably too late if you work for someone else, although you should always ask your HR department. Maybe there's a way to send in a check. But what George is talking about is a solo 401k, self-employed, that's his own account. He probably has it with Schwab or Vanguard or Fidelity or someone like that. He probably can send in that that check and count it as profit sharing. Profit sharing is normally the, you know, the the owner or the boss of, or the, the owners of the company decide to share some profits with the employees, but he is both the owner and the employee, so he can decide to share those profits with himself. I would just say, call whoever is the provider of your 401k to make sure your plan allows for that, and then how to make sure they get that money before December 31st.
0: All right. Our next question comes from... Oh, Okay. All right. Let me just say that I love an Irish accent. It's one of my favorite accents in the world. Siri is set to being an Irish person. So every evening he says, you know, I've set your alarm for 7.30 and it's great. Okay. <laughs> this name has one too many consonants for me to be able to pronounce it correctly. So I feel bad. Longtime listener from Dublin, Ireland. This question comes from Tag, Tad. Tad or tad? Spell, spell it. So people. T-A-D-G-H. So one or more of those consonants has got to be quiet. Right. So tag or tad. Either way. I love you. and I can't wait to come visit you. All right, here we go. I am currently a subscriber to Motley Full Stock Advisor and I have a question. When I reach the optimal 15 stock recommended portfolio, do you recommend that I keep adding monthly savings to those holdings or do you recommend I continue to buy the new recommendations and the top 10 recommended stocks each month and build up a bigger portfolio of stocks with a small holding of each? Great question. Lots of good information in Stock Advisor. What are you going to do with it?
1: Yeah, I would say, um, I would consider, first of all, that 15 is a minimum number. That's an aspirational thing, and we want people to get the 15 before they add any to those existing 15 that they bought, right? So don't re up on those until you get the 15. I would say, once you get the 15, that's not an ending number, right? I would consider going and adding new stocks after that. If, however, you feel really strongly and you like one and you'd like to add a little bit, go ahead and do that. That's all right. But I would consider adding more stocks, probably around 25 to 35, I think is where most people end up falling around or falling out as far as the number of stocks that are manageable and they like in their portfolio. The other thing that I'm going to mention is is to keep in mind is turnover, right? Like nobody wants 15 stocks and hold those for 30 or 40 years. We love the idea of holding long stocks, but you need some turnover in your portfolio to make sure that it's relevant. And we even see that happening today in the S&P 500. As a matter of fact, today on the 21st of December. Tesla is being added to the S&P 500, perhaps um, a day late and a dollar short. I don't know. I mean, it's been a while here and it's a pretty big company already. And uh, they're replacing apartment investment and management company, which has not fared so well since they announced that they've been leaving the S&P 500. But the point here is even the uh, passive indexes need to add companies to keep them relevant, right? We remember when Amazon went in there and all this kind of stuff. So, um, I would say keep adding new companies and also don't feel bad about selling off some of your losers after you've held them for a few years, right? And seen how things played off. So 15 is a starter idea. Next step is 25 to 35. But if you want to add some more to those existing 15, you can do that.
0: It's now also a good time to mention that not all of our recommendations will be winners. And We're sorry about that, but that's what it means to be an investor.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're the, I mean, we've talked about this, you know, ad nauseum, I think, but if you're the best person in the world at this, you're going to be wrong 40% of the time. So there are going to be some losers in there. And I'd say our instincts as investors are typically wrong. We hate selling off those losers because it's painful. You know, when you take a loss, it's really hard. And there's this um, need to lock in the gains of the winners. But I would say the opposite is the best-performing kind of medicine for everyone, is to let those great stocks that are doing well run and sell off those ones that haven't done as well.
0: All right. Our next question comes from Josh. In a portfolio of individual stocks, what is the optimal strategy over time to deal with position size, addition of cash, and rebalancing? Let's say I want to build a portfolio with 30 positions and plan to target equal weights. Do you add new money to the original target weights or do you add to the lower weights to try and rebalance without selling? Do you let this portfolio run and simply dollar cost average at your target weights or do you sell your winners and add to losers each year? Oh, I think you just answered. Spoiler alert, Buck. Some, some, some of this one. Finally, yeah. if you already have a large portfolio and want to add a new position, do you focus on building that out by allocating most of your money to it? Or do you simply add to your equal weight list that you buy every month and let it grow over time?
1: Yeah. So I, I'd say the, the main part here, Josh, is to realize that when you create an equal weight portfolio, um, it's only going to be equal weight on day one. Right? Like, we love holding stocks for a long time. And you can look at any of the scorecards on our Motley Fool services. And there are outliers, right? Like um, at the longer you hold your stocks and the longer you an investor, um, what happens is a few of those companies tend to dominate the portfolio, right? And if they get to a weighting that's too high for you, you can sell them off. We love the idea of rebalancing with that new money, which you mentioned there. The one thing I would just caution a little bit about is... Um, adding more to your losers all the time, right? So we love adding to winners, which is kind of interesting, but the other thing I would just say is don't get so caught up on the fact that this has to be perfectly equally weighted. You are going to the longer this portfolio runs, have some stocks that take off. If they get too too big for you that you can't sleep at night and you feel uncomfortable and that a 40 or 50% loss in any one of those stocks would impact the way you live, go ahead by all means, sell some of that down, right? And some rough guidelines for kind of allocations are no more than 10% in a single position and no more than 30% in an individual sector um, of stocks, but that's a guideline. You may be very comfortable with a little bit more and been investing for 20 years and that's fine too. I would just say those are rough guidelines for people to consider, but use that new money and rebalance and add to some of the lower positions that you like, they could have done well or not, um, but we like adding the winners more than losers. Does that make sense?
2: Yep, that makes sense. And, and I'll just add the flip side of this: um, for people who are retired, it's sort of the other way around. They have to decide, you know, what to sell, and that certainly deciding what to sell is a way to rebalance your portfolio. And I think it does. If you're retired, having a, a concentrated portfolio is a little more risky. So I love that question that you said: you know, what's going to happen if this stock or these stocks go down? How does that affect my life? It's probably a bigger impact for people who are retired. So it's just to think about, okay, how do I maintain a certain amount of balance by selling what either has become overweight, or it's just a great way to prune your portfolio of the of the stocks you no longer believe in.
1: Yeah. And I know, bro, you've talked about this a lot um, in markets. You know, the market go, goes up on average about 9% a year, let's say. But in years where there's big market outperformance, well above that, we like the idea of kind of selling off a little bit more in those periods. So that when you hit a year when the market's down 10 or 15 or 20%, you don't feel like you need to liquidate those stocks um, when they're not as prices that are as attractive.
0: Next question comes from Nate. I've been pondering a change in career. I currently have a Roth for O1K and an employee savings plan that kind of acts like a pension, which I believe becomes stock in the company if you leave. What do I need to know about moving those holdings with me if when I leave? And what questions should I be asking myself and a company about their retirement plans when considering taking a new job?
2: So, Nate, uh, good questions. I'll just say with the employee stock, that's one of those areas that I think it's always important to, first of all, talk to the people at the company who administer the plan so you know all your options, and then talk to a financial planner or an accountant because company stock can get a little tricky. So I'm not gonna offer any specific advice other than make sure you seek out the relevant professionals Um, because each stock plan can be a little different and you wanna understand the details of your plan. Um, In terms of moving over your old account, um, I would say, first of all, let's start with actually questions for the new plan. You wanna know, first of all, what's the match? When it, or if you're looking at prospective employers, what's the match? You also want to know what are the investment options, but also if you, if you have the option of buying individual stocks, only about 10 to 20% of plans allow that. Uh, but it's generally pretty important to Motley Fool members because they want to be able to pick their individual stocks. So I would say that's important to know. And you want to know uh, whether the employer is covering all the costs, Um, In about 70% of plans, employers expect employees to share at least some of the costs, so you would want to know how much you're going to have to pay. And then once you take that new job, your next question is then, do you want to roll over your old 401k to the new 401k? Um, Certainly possible to do that. Most plans allow it. It would depend on whether the the new plan is worth it. Generally, I think we recommend that you roll it over to an IRA because it'll give you more options um, and probably lower costs. Uh, The only thing to consider when rolling over is uh, whether the investments can come over in kind or whether you have to cash out first, because if you have to cash out first, there will be a period, one, two weeks, in some cases, just a few days, but that you will be out of the market. You won't be fully invested. So that's something to consider. And um, I'm just going to add another question to this that we received from another member. Their question was, um, what about a taxable brokerage account? Um, will I be able to, if I switch brokers, move over the investments in kind? Because otherwise, if they have to be sold, the person would have to recognize some significant capital gains. And I would say, generally, you are as long, as long as it's just regular old you know funds, ETFs, stocks or stuff like that. But before you move over from one broker to another, make sure that you record all your cost basis information. These days, cost basis info is legally supposed to be carried over. Um, but if you've had stocks that you've held a really, really long time, um, the information may not come over. Um, plus, sometimes when information when stuff goes from one broker to another, information gets lost. So always make sure that you get your cost basis info before you switch brokers.
0: Next question comes from Brian. For the past several years, I've always kept a 50-50 mix of dividend payers and gross stocks in my taxable brokerage account, but always had to pay taxes on those dividend payouts. Since March, I've exclusively purchased only non-dividend paying growth stocks for my taxable account. This is my plan moving forward. I'm a buy and hold investor, so whenever I do sell, if ever, it will be at the long-term capital gains rate. In my Roth, I only buy blue chip dividend players. I love the fact that all my dividends will grow tax-free in my Roth. Do you feel this is a strong, foolish strategy?
1: Brian, my brother from Lancaster County. Um, yeah, this is why I picked this question, right? I always feel good about um, answering a question from Lancaster County because that's where I'm from. Um, yeah, I think your strategy is sound, Brian. The only thing that I would add in there, and and Bro knows a lot about this and more more than I do as well, is that you know, ideally, if you had um, known which stocks were going to go up a lot, <laughs> I would probably put them in my Roth, right? And so some of those growth stocks that may, you know, be a 10 bag or a 20 bag or do really well for you, you probably want to shield those gains by putting them in a Roth. Um, but I think you're smart about putting the dividend payers in a tax-deferred account. That makes sense to me. Um, what I've learned from my own, um, uh, I guess, mistakes and successes Is that I kind of spread it around a little bit because, you know, as much as I like to think I know which ones are going to do the best, it doesn't always work out that way. So I put a little bit of each stock in each account. Um, That way I do have some high growers in my tax deferred accounts as well as some dividend payers. But keeping those dividends, um, you know, tax deferred is a good idea.
2: Yeah. And Brian does raise a good point. Even if you're reinvesting the dividends, you will be taxed if it's in a taxable account. Uh, now, I have a question for you, Buck. Do you automatically reinvest your dividends or do you let them accumulate in cash and then become
1: be more deliberate with your purchases? I don't. I don't automatically reinvest my dividends. And I think almost most people do not, as far as most of the research that I've read there. Um, I, I'm perfectly capable of making bad investments with that dividend uh, money on my own. <laughs> Instead of reinvesting it, I'm a little bit of a control freak. So I do reinvest it but I don't always reinvest it in the place that it came from.
2: Yeah. And that's another way to maintain balance in your portfolio is to let the dividends accumulate in cash rather than automatically and reinvest them. Um, and it's a great way to build up a cash cushion when you're getting close to retirement. Just basically within five years of retirement, just don't reinvest them. Just build up the cash cushion. So you've built up a gradual margin of safety as you get closer to the big day.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Next question comes from Brandon. My 13-year-old son is interested in investing. He's asked me for advice, but I'm not sure what resources are available and where to start. My initial comment was to invest in, quote, good companies that you like. Can you help me? One, what are five stocks I can give him as starter stocks? Two, what resources are available that are applicable to a 13-year-old? And for the record, he's willing to hustle as he already buys and sells shoes and apparel for profit.
1: You know, as far as five starter stocks, I would consider things that Brandon likes. Like, what is what would he spend if he's out there hustling, he's making money? That's the, that's the big step. I mean, that's the first step. But think about what he would spend his discretionary money on if he had a chance. Like if he had 20 or 40 bucks, what would he buy? I mean, if he likes video games, think about Electronic Arts and Activision Blizzard and that kind of stuff. Um, but I would say those first five stocks should be good stocks. I mean, if he likes watching Mandalorian... On uh, Disney Plus, like go ahead and get him some Disney, right? Like get him stuff that he can relate to. I think that's. I have three children, and that's one of the things that I've tried to do with the stock purchases that we've made is buy stocks that they're interested in, and that they know when they go buy something from that company, a little tiny piece of it is coming back to them as also being an owner of the business. Um, So that's what I would recommend uh, as far as starting up and and which stocks to buy.
2: And we've done that with our kids as well. But also, each of them have just index ETFs, US total market, international market, just a couple of shares just so that they see what it's like to own an index fund and just experience the ups and downs of the overall stock market. The other thing I will add is, um, because this uh, young fellow is making money, uh, he technically could contribute to a Roth IRA. Now, there's some tax issues with that. You would have to document the the income and so you might want to talk to a tax professional. But then he could contribute to the, the Roth IRA, which is great because the earnings will grow tax-free. And with a Roth IRA, if you need the contributions before age 59 and a half, they can come out tax and penalty free. So it's not locked in forever. So that's just another consideration.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm a, I'll add one more thing, Brandon, that might be a good idea. Since, since he's already showing initiative and in earning money on his own. One of the things that we did for our kids is we did a matching program. So whatever money they earned on their own throughout the year, we would match that dollar for dollar at the on their birthdays, actually. We would count out that money, and that would go into their stock account, and they could buy more stocks with it. And that's something that I think there's a couple things interesting about it. One is during the year, um, they have to decide when they want to buy something. They have to really want it. So if you're paying $40 for a, a baseball mitt, It's really costing you 80 if you buy it before your birthday because you're going to lose that match on that 40 because it's all about not only earning the money, but also saving it. And then the other thing is it it adds a little incentive for them. Sure, it's 100% match. That's a big number, but we're starting off a small base. I imagine he's not earning a ton of money doing this. And what they see is it starts to snowball working where after three or five or seven years, they realize, wow, look how this is going and it kind of lights the fire on the importance of the most important thing that they can do is to save, right? And that's that's one of the lessons that you want to get across to your children.
0: Yeah, one of the best things for me when I was first learning how to invest after I got the job here at The Motley Fool... Um, was listening to Market Foolery every day. I mean, it's a short podcast. It's like, what, 20 minutes maybe? And they just talk about the headlines and they talk about investing and they goof off and and they have some fun. So that might actually be, I would recommend just a nice thing that you two could do together while you're doing dishes or i don't know what people do do these days but uh we're always doing dishes right so there you go help out mom and you guys do the dishes every night and listen to market foolery and then talk about talk about (laughs) what they talked about on the show everybody wins
1: that's right. right there we go
0: all right next question comes from david g but not the david g we usually think about here at the motley fool not david gardner all right i assume uh i enjoy your podcast on the increase of the safe withdrawal rate from 4 to 45 to 5%. One thing I have never seen discussed is when does it make sense to increase the amount over the original plus inflation rate. As I recall from studies, some outcomes would have resulted in a large portfolio after 30 years, meaning one could have spent more. I figure that any time the 4% of the balance is greater than the original plus inflation, then you could bump it up to 4% of that new balance." I think a good solution might be in another of your articles on what MIT does for its endowment. I need to tweak as much as I do. Not think I will live forever. Wow, bro! I think you found a kindred spirit on safe withdrawal rate. <laughs> uh, and you I guys actually need I, to start
2: a club. Uh, I think this is the Dave. This is the same Dave who wrote us a while back, when he when he started his job in the army, uh, his commanding oh, yeah. officer told him to when you get a raise, bank half the raise and then. By the time he was in his fifties, he was saving forty two percent of his income and was able to retire early. So yes, Dave and I are you and Dave are long
0: distance best buddies. That's right. We don't know it yet. Yeah, that's right.
2: Uh, okay, so safe withdrawal rates. Yes. So what we had talked about previously on the show, you know, people have heard the four percent rule came from a guy named Bill Bangen, a retired financial planner. Now he's retired. He, he was a financial planner at the time. He started out at four, then he bumped it up to four point five, and now in a recent article published in October, he says it's five percent. Um, but Dave. G here is pointing out something important and that, that that safe withdrawal rate is a worst case scenario withdrawal rate and that the in the vast majority of situations, if you start with that withdrawal rate, you actually will die 30 years later with more money than you started your retirement with. So you can theoretically increase your withdrawal rate as long as your portfolio goes well. So one simple way to do that is just every few years, just restart. So if you decided that 5% was the right withdrawal rate for you at age 65, you know, at age 68, go ahead and do 4.5% of your the current value of your portfolio, especially if it's gone up. Um, Dave is also referencing MIT and he, he he's playing off an article I published a couple of years ago and that I suggested that people could do withdrawal rates similar to what colleges and universities do with their endowment, which is basically... the the basic rule of thumb is just take out 5% of the value every year. So in great years, it's up. In bad years, it's down. The problem is from the university's perspective is that's a lot of volatility and year-to-year spending. So what most colleges do is their annual withdrawal rate from their endowments is a mix of a, a fixed percentage, a fixed amount dollar amount increased by inflation every year. And then a part that is variable. So since he mentioned MIT's, this is MIT's formula. So each year they take out of their endowment, 80% of it comes from the previous year's distribution increased by inflation, but then 20% of it is 5.1% of the value of the endowment. So again, there's some smooth, some bit of predictability from year to year, but some of it also goes up and down with the market, which is Probably what you should do if the market is down, you probably shouldn't take out as much. Um, so I actually think the whole endowment way of doing it probably makes more sense, but it does require that you have a certain level of flexibility in your budget, so that if your distribution is down from one year to the next, that you could handle that.
0: Next question comes from Mont. I'm currently saving up to start my investing journey, hooray! And would like your thoughts on stock options through work. I'm a big fan of my company's stock, Home Depot, and can essentially have my employer withhold X percent of my paycheck and buy stock on two set dates a year at 15 percent off the market value on those dates. It's a great deal on a great stock, to be sure. But my question is, how much of my available funds should be dedicated to the company I work for and how much should go to the self-directed account?
1: Um, Wow. So that's an awesome offer. There's not too many people to get this offer from their company and, and I will say something that's uh, maybe a little controversial, and then I'll let bro step in and um, be a little bit more conservative than me. I'd say I used opportunity cost, right? So when I go out and look for stocks, I can look everywhere, I try to find the best place to put my money that I can. You're basically saying that through your work, you can buy a dollar's worth of stock in a good company, Home Depot has not been a bad company, right? It's been a good company. The stock has done well over long periods of time. It's one of the leaders in their space, if not the leader. And you can buy a dollar worth of that stock for 85 cents. Like that's a guaranteed 15% return right off the bat when the stock market over long periods of time has done about 9%, right? To me as like an investor, I get a little greedy when I hear things like that, right? Like I'm like, that's a good thing and I'll take more of it. Now, you have to consider, you know, you work for Home Depot. If something goes bad there and something happens to your job and you also have a lot of your worth tied up into that company, you have to consider that. So there's going to be limits. But I would say, you know, I would put a lot in there um, just because I think it's a great offer. Um, And and I wouldn't I wouldn't feel bad about that. But just recognize that, you know, you work there. I also think by working at the company you probably have better insights into Home Depot and how the business is doing than those of us are just looking in from the outside, right? You're there every day. You see the people like your services and what's going well, what's not working and how COVID's impacting the business and all that kind of stuff. So I'd say if I can get a dollar for 85 cents, I'd get a lot of it, right? That's just me.
0: All right, bro. Now, now bring them down. Bring them down.
1: Hey, bro.
2: Oh no, I, I'm not going to bring them down at all. I mean, I, I would say, I, I would say it's true. I mean, you have some extra insights of the company, and it's just a, it's a tough deal to pass up, especially with Home Depot. And I and I say I'm biased because I've owned the stock for at this point I think almost 20 years, if not more. Um, so but yes, it, it, there's that that limit of how much you should have in one stock. And you would technically even lower it a little bit more if it's also your employer. And the other factor to consider is with many of these plans, you can't generally buy the stock, you know, 85 cents on the dollar and then turn around and sell for a dollar. There's usually a holding period involved um, and you generally have to be employed by that company for that period. So you have to figure that in too. It's not exactly quite as liquid as if you bought a stock in your brokerage today and decide to sell it a week later.
0: All right, our next question comes from Patrick. Did you know we're in an index bubble? The internet says so. In all seriousness, I was planning on using a Vanguard ETF as a pillar in my portfolio until I saw this bit of news. Is it anything to be concerned about? Also, should I be concerned about ETF liquidity? Are there certain characteristics of an ETF I should be looking for that might affect its liquidity?
1: Yeah, um, Patrick, I would say here's the thing I, I don't know if we're in an index bubble. I do know that stocks are very expensive relative to their historical rates, right? We, we kind of know that. Um, I'm not as interested in owning an index at these prices um, just personally, but I'd say it depends on how long you plan on owning that asset, right Like we like the idea of index funds at low cost. you get broad exposure to um, you know a, a wide swath of individual businesses, which is great. I tend to like the equally weighted indexes better than the market cap weighted indexes like the S&P 500 um, from Vanguard. But I would say if you're um, 20 years old and you're just starting out and you have a job, don't worry about the bubble, <laughs> right? Like you're going to be investing for a long period of time. On the other hand, if you're 55 or 60 and you're getting closer kind of to retirement um you know, I wouldn't be as excited about adding that index. So I think it just all depends on the time of where you're at. Um, but it is expensive from historical standpoints. And it's that way because interest rates are near zero everywhere across the world. So the multiples on earnings even for the S&P 500 is very high, right, from what it's been historically. But interest rates could stay low for a long time yet, right? Like Look at Japan and some of these other places. I'm not great at forecasting that, I just know it's unlikely that we're going to see a big multiple expansion on earnings or anything else and that the growth rates for the S&P 500 have not been really high recently. And I'm not talking about the, the, the price of the stocks. I'm talking about the growth of earnings within the S&P 500 and that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. And I'll just say that with with index funds, when people talk about the index fund bubble, they really are generally talking about the S&P 500 index index funds, which is the most popular way that people index. And part of that is because the index has become so concentrated in the biggest five to 10 companies, and they tend to be tech companies. Um, Whereas if you were to look at like a small cap value index fund, that's probably not so pricey. So if you were looking for a way to get exposure to some other asset classes, I think an index fund is a good way to do it, and you know, part of the other part of his question was the liquidity concerns, and I would say for the most part, you don't have to worry about that, especially if you are looking at like Vanguard ETFs because they're generally very large, they invest in very liquid assets. Some of the more, um, I would say, I guess, obscure ETFs that focus on more thinly traded stocks, like microcap ETFs, for example. Those might have more liquidity concerns, but uh, ETFs like stocks have a bid-ask spread. You could look at you a know, quote provider like Yahoo Finance, there's the bid, there's the ask. Most of those, the difference will be like one or two pennies. If it's larger than that, if it gets to especially if it's over like a dollar or something like that, then you do have a question of where maybe that ETF is not as actively traded.
1: Yeah, and I'll, and I'll add in, Allison, since I, I said I probably wouldn't be as interested in the S&P 500 right now, I will offer an alternative to that, and that is the an ETF that's the equally weighted NASDAQ 100. So QQQE um, is the ticker for that. I like that a little bit um, better. Those stocks are going to grow much faster than the average of the S&P 500. These are, tend to be tech heavy companies in there. They're also equally weighted, so you don't have those big ones in the top dominating. It's just you know 1% in each of the 100 companies. And that has outperformed the S&P 500 over a lot of different periods. So if I had to choose an index to average into right now, I would choose the NASDAQ 100 equal weight.
0: All right. Next question comes from Andrew. I have stock accounts for my six and three-year-olds, both accounts holding three fool picks each. Recently, their grandparents gave them a nice gift. Should I continue to grow their stock accounts or set up a 529 for college? My thinking is I, with the fool's advice, can outperform the 529 with stock picks. Granted, I will need to pay the taxes, but with the time horizon of at least 12 years, will the profits in a general account outweigh the 529 and the taxes? I personally am an older father who turned 50 this year. When the kids go to college, I will be in a good place financially as we currently have a few million in the retirement account now. I plan to pay for their college, so odds are I probably won't even use the kids' money for college. But if I did need the money from my kids' accounts, I assume since they are dependents, it will get taxed at my tax rate. Or if they are 18, can it be in their tax bracket, suspecting they will be in the lowest tax tax bracket. If you suggest the 529, would you go with the best state plans and pay the out-of-state fee or stay in your current state plan?
2: Uh, Well, Andrew, there's a lot of good questions in there. So just to start with the 529, as you suggest, the benefit of the 529 is that the growth is tax-free as long as the money is used for qualified education expenses, mostly higher education, but these days you could actually use it for up to $10,000 a year in qualified elementary and secondary school expenses. The problem with the 529 is that you don't have many investment options. It's kind of like a 401k in that you just have choices among a handful of uh, mutual funds and you can only make generally two trades a year. So a lot of people, especially Motley Fool listeners and readers who are experienced at picking individual stocks feel like, yeah, the tax breaks are great, but I can do better just buying regular old stocks and selling them. Um, And I think that's, very possible. Um, so, if you are considering that, one thing I would say is to look at the Coverdell Education Savings Account, um, which does allow you to pick individual stocks. The limits are low, only two thousand dollars per year, but uh, you have until April fifteenth to make a contribution for twenty twenty. So, you could actually contribute two thousand now for twenty twenty, or up to up to April fifteenth, and then do another two thousand for twenty twenty one. So, you could at least get that four thousand dollars in there. The other thing that's interesting about your situation is that you're saying that you may not need the money for college because you have money elsewhere. And that is an important consideration because with these accounts, the money that you put in, if the money is not if it's money's not used for school, it'll come out tax and penalty free. You don't have to worry about that money. It's the growth that will be taxed and penalized 10% if it's not used for qualified higher education expenses. Now you can always transfer it to other relatives. So if for some reason you don't use the money for your kids, you could actually generally leave the money in the 529s for your grandkids eventually. And, and goodness gracious, how big would those accounts be by that time? Coverdells are different. Coverdells, the money does have to be used by age 30. Um, and the other thing I would point out here is that you have three stocks for each kid, which as we've talked about already in the show, that probably better to be for a higher num- number than that. I wouldn't want my kids' college depending on three stocks. So if you decide to go the stock route, I would certainly consider expanding your portfolio to beyond those three. And then finally, if you do decide to go the route of the 529, um, two great sites that that rate plans are Morningstar and savingforcollege.com, you can see which are the best plans and to see what benefits your state's plan offer to see whether they're worth Sticking with your state's plan. But as you suggest, you don't have to stick with your state's plan. If your state's plan is not very good and there are no benefits to residents, you can choose another state's plan.
0: All right, our next question comes from Emil. If you have six months of living costs set aside in an emergency fund, it's highly unlikely you're going to need the whole pot at once. Is it defendable to have one third invested in a lower risk, large cap, dividend paying stock and sell off only if needed? I'm 40 years old and aim for the following allocations. 10% emergency fund, 20% cash, 10% set aside on significant investment opportunities in watchlist or market correction, 60% in stocks. I find it hard to separate cash to pay for living expenses, opportunity funds, cash for investing, and the emergency fund. Should they be kept separate when overall allocating?
1: Yeah. Neil, uh, I like this. Uh, I like where you're thinking. It's a short answer. Um, you're getting a little greedy So I'm going to say no. I mean, we have um, emergency funds set aside for emergencies, and I don't want them in anything but cash. I realize cash earns nothing now, pretty much, and you're trying to get a little bit of yield out of that emergency fund, it sounds like to me. But I would say let it alone, right? Like um, it's set aside in cash for a reason, because as we've seen in March, stocks can go down 30% in less than 30 days, right? Things can happen to it. And um, so to the extent you have an emergency fund, that should be in cash in my view. Um, bro may differ with maybe tips or laddering something, but I like them just in cash. You're not getting much in tips or any of that stuff these days. Anyhow, now, the other one that you talked about was your kind of opportunity fund for stocks. I like how you're thinking about that. Um, I, I would just, I would have that in cash, right? Because like when you find something you like, you don't know when it's going to strike. So that would be in addition to the six months living expenses that you set aside. You can put them in separate accounts, which is fine. They don't like. I would keep that in my brokerage account, and so I would see that's cash that I can spend on stocks anytime I want. The other cash would probably be in a bank account somewhere, where I'm not going to a savings account where you're earning less than a percent, but I'm not going to touch that.
0: And everyone resents their emergency fund so much right now, don't they? Right. Except for those who actually ended up needing to tap it.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, and it does seem like you know. I think Emil brings up a good point in that when you have these different cash needs and then you, which, which part of your cash goes to this, which part of your cash goes to that. And I think it definitely makes sense for your emergency fund to be in another savings account. Uh, I'm going to say a high yield savings account, but I say that knowing that there's really no such thing anymore. Um, but you can go to the Ascent, which is a Motley Fool company and a website where you look for at least somewhat higher yields. I just think it's better to have that in a separate account so you don't think of it so that when you look at your regular checking account, you're not seeing that money and in, in, in the back of mind thinking that you could spend it. It's better to be separate. And you can do that for other goals too. If you're saving for a car, saving for a house, saving for Christmas, you know, save a little bit each month up until Christmas. So that's stashed away somewhere separate and it's not mingled with your other stuff. So you, you almost kind of forget about it.
1: Yeah. And, and last thing I'll add, Emil, is you're 40 years old, so you're pretty young and you're right. You're probably not going to tap it all uh, at once. Once you get that six months of savings set aside, um, you don't have to add to the emergency account. Now, the only um, thing that I would add to that is if you have children or something else happens, you may want to build up nine or 12 months. You know, when we had young kids. I want a little bit more of a cushion there in case something happened. But if you're 40 years old and you don't have any obligations, once you get that six months of living expenses set aside, you don't have to add to that anymore.
0: All right, our last uh, question. This has been a pretty epic mailbag here to finish off the year. Our last question comes from Tom. I am sold on the idea of having a fee only financial planner after listening to your show for some time. I use Vanguard for my investing. They offer financial advice, but at a fee of 0.3% of the portfolio. I would like to find a financial planner and pay them a flat rate for their time. Where do I find a fee only fiduciary financial planner? Does Robert Brokamp do this? Oh. <laughs> bro, you got a client. I if know. Not, it's so you, nice. <laughs> if not, would you recommend a financial planner with similar values and styles as his? Well, unfortunately, there's only one Robert Brokamp.
2: Well, so and what's second
0: best? Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, I, and I am not uh, legally allowed to, to provide financial advice. But let me tell you, Tom, it just makes me feel so good. It's like the, <laughs> that you would want me to manage your money. I'm just so honored. Um, but I will suggest a couple other places to look. And we've mentioned them before, but I'll mention them again, because I think the beginning of the year, which we're coming up on here, is a great time to reevaluate your finances, see how things are going. And as I've said before on the show, I think everyone, even if you're a do it or should get a professional second opinion every five to 10 years, and certainly as you get closer to retirement. So the two places I always recommend are the Garrett Planning Network. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Uh, and I've know many of the Garrett planners. I've been to their conference many times. Solid, solid people. Uh, And then NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Uh, Many Garrett folks belong to NAPFA, and I've been to NAPFA conferences as well. Um, And you just want to make sure that you find someone who's going to provide what you want on your terms. It sounds to me like you want to pay by the hour, by the project. You just got to find someone who'll do that. Um, Some people will, some people won't. Uh, One of the Interesting things about this pandemic is many more uh, professionals, including financial planners, are comfortable working over Zoom, over email. And if you're comfortable with that, you're no longer just limited to the people in your area. You could find someone else as long as they are licensed in your state. So go to the, the websites of those networks, put in your zip code, see who's in your area or is at least licensed area, read their websites, see who you feel like is a kindred spirit with you and works on your terms, interview about three of them, and then choose one to go with.
0: Well, there you go. Wow, you guys. High fives. That was a ton of questions to, to finish off the year. I guess I should probably do some sort of disclaimer since I think we talked about some stocks. So As always, The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about. Uh, don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. I know bro and buck sound great, but you know, do your own research, right? Yes, Buck. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, and happy holidays, you guys. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime in 2021. Oh my goodness, I hope the so.
0: 2021, someday. All right. So yes, this is the last episode of the year. Whoo! What is this like? Five years have we been doing this show? Four years? I don't know, bro. Six. Six. Oh my god. Six. Was
2: I? Amazing. It was December. December fourteenth, I think. Oh I was our sixth year anniversary. Like-
0: over 300 episodes of this it's an uh,
2: awful lot of answers folks it's So, tons much. and tons of answers
0: Whew. <laughs> all right well let's keep it going in 2021 sound good sounds good all right as always the show is edited faithfully by rick angdahl our email is answers at fool.com for robert brokamp i'm allison southwick stay foolish everybody